Hello and welcome to LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. This is the behind the scenes podcast with members of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. So come on in. We're going to go on a deep dive into one specific piece of music, Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. And today I'm joined by piccolo player Stuart McElwam, trumpeter Anne McEnany and violinist Fiona Hyam, who will take us inside this powerful piece. Welcome, Stuart Anne and Fiona. It's great to see you all. Hi there. And Hi. You, thank you. Now, I know that the backstory of this piece of music is not so cheery, but absolutely beautiful melodies within. So if you can cast your minds back to your first introduction to this piece, when did you first play Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony, Anne? In actual fact, I can't recall the first time I played it. I have played it on very, very many occasions, but I really can't recollect when the first time would have been. Generally, we become familiar with these pieces when we're in youth orchestra, for example. I recall Tchaikovsky's fifth symphony from those days, but not the fourth. So I'm assuming it was either at university or perhaps even after that when I was in the business, but I totally can't remember. (laughs) It might come back to you as we delve deeper into the melodies with you. Stuart, was it with the LPO or were you familiar with this piece way before? The fact is my my father was a piccolo player. So I grew up in a household where the first sounds I heard were flute and piccolo sort of coming down the stairs from his room upstairs. And um, he pointed out to me that track four was going to be like if you're going to become a flute or piccolo player, it's a a really important piece of repertoire. So it was on my radar since I was very young, you know. When was the first time you got to play it on top of the big sound? The first time I actually played it in a concert was in Cambridge with an orchestra that was sort of semi-professional called the Cambridge Symphony Orchestra. And I was asked by somebody to go up there and play it, you know, and um, it was a very nerve-wracking experience. I can imagine. How old were you then? I was probably about 18 or 19. Wow. And also then for you, Fiona, when was the first time you encountered this piece? I can't say I remember exactly when I first played it, but I have to say that when I heard that we were going to discuss this particular piece in this podcast, my heart rather sank. Oh, no! Because I have had a sort of ambiguous relationship with Tchaikovsky as a composer and in particular with the Fourth Symphony for for two reasons. The first one is that as a young freelance player I played a lot of what we call um, muddy field dates. (laughs) What are those? Sort of ad hoc concerts um, which were put together kind of at the last minute you know usually on the day and often in outdoor venues. Oh boy. Where you could hardly feel your fingers, you know. My sort of impression at that time, my first impressions of playing Tchaikovsky were that it, the music was very sentimental and sort of populist. And so I didn't have a very close connection to it in that way. But also the other reason, I have a particular personal connection to Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony because I chose the fate theme, the opening theme from the symphony, to be played at my father's funeral oh, wow. when, when I was 16. And I, I felt at the time that the music, especially the fate theme, and in particular Tchaikovsky's sort of state of mind in 1877 yes. when he wrote this piece, yes. which was very dark, reflected my father's because he, he sadly took his own life. So you can understand that for me, the piece has many ambiguities 
because at that time when I chose it and I thought it was very appropriate, which I think it was, I never realised that I would be later on playing in a great orchestra like the London Philharmonic, where we play Tchaikovsky a lot and that piece a lot. So inevitably, all the times it comes back, it reminds me of that occasion as well. And do you feel that you've gone full circle emotionally then when you play it? Is there a sense of completion or do you always end up tracking back to that 16-year-old? In spite of those feelings, I did completely change my feeling about Tchaikovsky as a composer when I started to experience playing these symphonies with Vladimir Yurovsky, our principal conductor, because his interpretation as a Russian just showed me that this music was much more serious and profound than than I had thought, and that the, the aspect of the sentimentality as I saw it was not the paramount thing and so for Absolutely. me that was a real catharsis and I started to I really loved playing it and this piece also I should just say has a wonderful kind of show-off scherzo for the strings playing all pizzicato that's where you don't use the bow at all and you just pluck the string with your finger and it's a wonderful showpiece and we used to use it often as an encore with our principal conductor Kurt Mazur. Now, I want to delve into the story. You've given us a really nice insight there, Fiona, into sort of the backstory of Tchaikovsky, where he was when he was writing it, and also the idea of fate and, you know, the journey of life. Are you familiar with all of that when you go to play the piece? And is that the same across all the pieces that you play? I didn't used to, but actually, as I get older, I have a tendency to. It's absolutely fascinating to see what composers of their state of mind, where they were, for example, and how the orchestrations would be influenced by the musicians that he had available at the time. This particular symphony, obviously, as you've mentioned, he wrote at a very, very dark period of his life. In fact, I think actually he had just uh, attempted suicide himself at this point. That's correct, um, yeah. Because he'd uh, split up with his wife, uh, an unfortunate marriage, which only lasted a matter of weeks. And he'd gone off and he was staying by Lake Geneva with his brother when he wrote it. It's just the most extraordinary piece. I mean, as we've already mentioned about when you get to the third movement and all the, all the different colours that you get out of that. But this opening with the fanfares and the fit idea which runs throughout sometimes overpowers but thankfully in the end with the last movement we have quite a few mentions of it but in the end the rejoicing part is is what comes through and so when you are there with the horn sections and this beautiful fanfare that's coming through obviously with this deep message of fate are you thinking that as you're playing or are you concentrating just on the music and watching the conductor is all of that in your mind Well, it's pretty much all tied up together. You can't play anything as powerful as that without feeling what it's about. Yes. Of course, we watch the conductor, but to actually be part of a unit where you're in the middle of it, when it begins, the opening is the horns, then obviously the the trumpets take over the same figure. And, And yes, there is an intensity when you're playing it. Music has got this incredible power. If you're listening to it, it's got even more power when you're playing it. There's many times when I feel moved or I feel goose pimples. It depends what what music is. But yes, you're very much in it. And when we're talking about that fanfare, how many people are in that brass section playing that along with you? Well, it initially begins with four horns. Then you have a a descending line with the bass brass section, uh, the trombones and tuba. And then the trumpets come in. I sometimes feel we're slightly underpowered because there's four horns and just two trumpets. So we have to work a bit harder at that. 
it has to be said when we're playing Tchaikovsky or something which has similarly got a strong brass voice that we will have an extra person called the bumper who gives the first trumpet a bit of a lift at times. I'm a second trumpet player, so I spent most of my time playing an octave lower than the first trumpet which is great. <laughs> Save the chops. <laughs> the first parts, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's very, very strenuous work. So you need to have a lift, especially if you have a solo, you know. It is an amazing sign to be sitting in the middle of all that. I can only imagine. It sounds beautiful on the record, but to be in there on the stage must be wonderful. Stuart, you've spoken about being familiar with this piccolo solo. It's the piccolo solo, you know. But were you familiar with the context of the piece as well? Or I think as a flute player, whenever you see... Tchaikovsky on a programme, you know, it's going to be a workout of some degree. Yeah. I believe that Tchaikovsky played the flute amongst other instruments. Um, And his writing for flute and piccolo, uh, whatever the piece, whether it's a symphony, whether it's a ballet, an overture, there's always going to be something that is going to be challenging. So, you know, not just the Fourth Symphony, but a lot of his other pieces were excerpts that one practised from a very early age. Mm. And then when one got into orchestras and playing, you know, the the Fourth, Fifth and Sixth Symphonies are probably some of the most performed symphonies of all time, you know. I can see Anne and Fiona nodding along here, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I used to keep a record of how many times I'd played all those pieces and I sort of stopped in about... Oh, how much did did the tally get up to before you stopped? In 2000, I got up to 75 performances of Chime 4. And I've probably probably added another, um, well, probably the same again, I don't know. Well, I wonder if this statement still refers to you then, actually. I'm going to delve into this scherzo now. 90% of the time... This is a quote about piccolo players. 90% of the time you're bored to death and 10% of the time you're scared to death. Now, I'm understanding you've played this solo many, many times. You know, the piccolos wait two and a half movements, really, to get going and to you literally have to launch into this really, really tricky piece of music. That is the real challenge of this piece in that you have to sit on the stage, you know, for probably 25 minutes and you have to listen to the first and the second movement as almost a member of the audience and then quite a lot of plucking pizzicato and the strings and then the oboe solo comes in and you you suddenly just have to get yourself into a zone where you're you're ready to fire on all cylinders you have to just suddenly produce something without any warm-up any sort of preparation and the way I've sort of dealt with it over the years is that it's not a given that is, is right. going to is going to go the way you want it to go, but the the best chance you've got is just to practice it every day, so that you get it into your system and it almost becomes like an automatic reflex. Right. The trouble is you've got those two movements to sort of psych yourself out of of doing it, you know, and by the time you actually are there and you're looking at the music, the other thing is that I. When you open the music, the first thing you see is the third movement because you don't have any yes, notes. Yes, rests before that, yeah. yeah. So I never open the music <laughs> until the oboe comes in because I don't want to sit there and look at it for 25 minutes thinking, <laughs> I've got to play this thing, you know. Oh, bless you. <laughs> so, so I literally wait until the oboe comes in with the, the statement of that, that theme in the middle of the, uh, of the third movement. And then I open the music and I think, okay, Let's do this. Press the on button. Here we go. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, the reality is that 
I have put in so much pre-preparation over the years that even although my brain is probably turning to a cabbage, my physical reflexes will still hopefully deliver the required movements to produce it, you know. But when I'm sitting there waiting to do that, you know, I, I sort of go off mentally into, you know, into another realm sometimes, you know, just to... Just take yourself away yeah, from it. Yeah, try, try and slightly distance yourself, you know. Any wise words? I, I heard a, a wonderful interview with a lady in, in America, piccolo player, and she said that she sets herself up, puts her piccolo on the peg, does half an hour of housework and then goes back to her music and then plays it as if, you know, right now I've got to play it. No warm up, nothing. Um, what's your little tidbit of getting ready for a piece like this? Well, it's very similar to that. What I try to do when I get to work in the morning, everybody gets their instrument out of their case. The first thing I do is try and play track four. Wow. I tell a lot of my students, I said, the first thing you do when you start to practice of a day, get your piccolo out of the box. And before you play anything, just try and play the solo from track four. To refer back to your quote earlier about yes. the piccolo saying about the 90 and the 10 percent. Yes. I've always heard that in relation to brass playing, because obviously anyone who's been to an orchestral concert will be aware that quite a lot of the time we're sitting it's at the, the back doing yes. very little. And <laughs> and the, the people who are doing all the work, of course, are Fiona and her colleagues. Um, She's got a thumbs but, up here. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but it is nice to hear them playing. I mean, part of being in an orchestra isn't just playing, but it's actually listening. Yes. And, and it never ceases to amaze me the incredible musicianship of our string players when we're sitting listening to them. So beautiful, the sound that they get. It's fantastic. Talking about um, how do you deal with sitting there for a long time and doing nothing when you then have a, a huge solo? Because I, I suppose, like everyone else, when you get nervous and your heart races and, and, yes. and your breathing gets affected and maybe you get a little bit trembly. So... I have in the past, but there's a very famous solo uh, from Marlowe Three, the post horn solo, where the flugelhorn player or the post horn player is way backstage, has got no contact with anyone, and of course has to wait a very, very long time to play. So I used to sort of maybe jump up and down a bit, so I got slightly breathless, so I would be able to <laughs> appreciate what it was like to to actually have to play when your breathing is is affected. And there was, I remember one occasion getting one of my students to run up and down a flight of stairs, and he came back and he said he was panting. I said that's probably how you'll feel at the time. <laughs> Great advice. Thank you, Anne. And Fiona, what is it like playing this piece under different conductors? Well, it's entirely different, really, according to the conductor. And our impressions of the music are so coloured by our experiences of playing them with various conductors as well, I think. And yeah. although we had wonderful experiences playing all this music, especially Chike 4 with Court Mazur, for instance, our previous principal conductor, one of our previous principal conductors, I must say that I do think that Vladimir being Russian and having a deep emotional connection with Russian music and mm. Tchaikovsky in particular, it's almost like it's embedded in his Russian soul, to be a bit poetic. <laughs> um, yeah. But I feel that he brought a different level of emotional connection to the music. And although he is quite what we would call a cerebral conductor in that he He's not overly emotional in the way he, he conducts. I felt, and I think a lot of people felt, that the, the music comes through so strongly through him, the emotional connection, that actually it produces a very emotional uh, result. 
a very deep, deep, yes. profound effect. And I, I was just going to say something about the effects of music on the players. I mean, during when, because you touched on that earlier. And yeah. I would say that the thing about that is that, yes, yeah, sometimes one can be very deeply affected emotionally while you're playing by the music yes. because it touches you personally. And in a way, we have to guard against that because you simply cannot sit there and play with tears running down your face, you know. It's very true. Um, and also, uh, I once talked to Vladimir about this question. And he said, yes, but, you know, if you allow yourself to indulge completely in the music, in the emotional mm. power of the music, it will not come across to the audience. Very the audience, true. they won't get that. They'll just see a lot of musicians kind of looking sad or whatever, but it, the power of the music won't come through. So you have to kind of temper your reaction and keep your emotions in check so that right. you can still convey the music in a way that's technical and, and everything else. I guess there is a difference between, yeah, playing emotionally and feeling emotional. I feel differently about emotional involvement because the whole thing to me about live music is getting caught up in the moment and that's where the power of it lies. And you sit in a different position, obviously, to how I do. I'm looking out at the audience and I feel I'm communicating directly with the audience and receiving communication back with them and it seems like a two-way thing yes. to me. With different conductors, what are some of the changes that you've seen? Because what I want to get across to the listener is, does a conductor change a lot? A, a piece that you all have under your fingers or under your, your lips, <laughs> does a conductor make a lot of changes in that respect? Or what, what changes for you when you have a different person up front? If an orchestra is very used to playing a piece in a particular interpretation, and yes. then somebody comes along and has a very different conception of it, it's quite hard to bring that orchestra along with you to accept, yeah. to totally accept your interpretation because sometimes it goes against the grain. I mean, like things might be uncomfortable to play, for instance. Yeah. They might be much faster or much slower than you're used to. And so your initial reaction, I find, as a player is to go, oh, no, you know, I don't, I don't want to play it like that. <laughs> it takes a persuasive um, musician and a conductor to be able to get the orchestra to totally come on board with that idea. And do you have any memories of performing Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony on tour? Yes, there's one in particular. We had been touring in the Far East with our then principal conductor, Kurt Mazur. Yes. And whilst we were on this tour, he became increasingly unwell until it got to the point where after one of the concerts, we knew that the next day, simply, he wouldn't be able to perform. Uh -oh. We were heading the next day to Seoul in Korea, and so, of course, the management had the, the job on their hands to try and find a replacement conductor. On that occasion, it just so happened that in the same neck of the woods was Yuri Termakanov. And he stepped in, got on a plane and flew to Korea to join us. However, the programme that we had been playing with Kurt Mazur had the main symphony as Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. Sure. And uh, Yuri Tomakanov said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do the fourth. So they got hold of the music and we did the afternoon rehearsal, very brief one, as I recall. Yes. And then did the concert in the evening with him. And, of course, vastly different, as we've been talking about the different styles of, of the 
uh, various conductors and where where they come from. So we had a Russian conductor there. And what I was particularly struck by was what we've been talking about a lot, the third movement. (laughs) And of course, it begins with pizzicato strings. And he... He didn't use his hands or anything. He basically conducted this movement with nods of his head and eye no. movements and little shakes. Yeah, it was quite extraordinary and a joy to watch. Wow, Fiona's nodding there. Was that easy to follow? <laughs> I, I remember that, actually. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, sometimes conductors really don't need to use their hands. I mean, it is very interesting. If they're very, very skillful, they know they convey the tempo and the mood and everything, they can do it simply with a, with a very small gesture of their head. Yes. It's extraordinary. That's but, you know, beautiful. some conductors just have it in their body language. And it's not really about how they wave the stick. It's they can just literally, if you're, if you're looking at them, you can understand what they mean. That's fascinating to know. Stuart, do you have any experiences or memories of this piece on tour throughout the years? We did it in Australia on a tour with Vladimir Yurovsky. And the first concert, which was in Perth, had the symphony as the main the main item in the second half. And um, it was the first time we'd played it with Vladimir. Having played it, as I said, up until the year 2000, I'd already done 75 performances. <laughs> I can't remember how many I would have got to by that stage. I was really struck by how authentic and original and fresh it seemed with him. And he was presented with a bottle of wine on stage at the very end of the concert. And as he walked off, he walked up to me and he, no. gave, me, he gave me the bottle of wine. No! Uh, yeah. That's beautiful. And then, so when, when I came off stage, I, I went and sought him out and I said, well, thank you very much for that. You know, that's the ultimate recognition, you, you know, of of what one's trying to do when one's being a player. And I said, oh, I really enjoyed the performance. And I said, you know, I, I really love the interpretation. I said, how many times have you done this? And he said, yeah, this is my first performance. <laughs> oh, my. As a professional conductor. And, and you know, and, and it's to think that that was the first time he'd actually done it. It's incredible. And share with me. I was just going to mention there was a review of the CD that we had with Vladimir conducting Tchaikovsky 4 and 5. And basically this, this reviewer said, and I quote, he said, I don't think anyone will guess the LPO, which plays in a manner not unlike the great Russian ensembles of the past. So it's what he brings to us, you know, the yes. power of, of the Russian thing. And it's, so it's, it's not just tempos or, or changes of colour, but the whole sound of the orchestra. And does playing Tchaikovsky for so many years, Stuart, change how you hear the music when you listen to the orchestra now? I'm just going back to my first actual experience in a in a full symphony orchestra which was actually the Strathclyde Youth Orchestra nice. as it was called in those days <laughs> the first piece we played was Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet Overture and you know it's obviously again another incredibly popular piece of music but it's one of the hardest pieces of music to play mm. for for a wind section in terms of intonation and balancing his music it's seen as it's very sort of picture postcard type music. Some of the most famous tunes ever written for the orchestra are by Tchaikovsky, but his music is actually incredibly technical and much more sophisticated than I think a lot of people might actually give it the credit for. Obviously, I'm extremely fortunate to be a member of the London Philharmonic, you know, and when we play Tchaikovsky, we obviously 
do it in the best possible settings and, mm. and, and concert halls of the world. But his music is quite often churned out in, in less than ideal circumstances. But the guy was a genius. I really think sometimes Tchaikovsky is not really given his due. His music is timeless and of incredible value. It is indeed. Well said. And it's been beautiful hearing your respect for the music, how much it's moved you and your different anecdotes and experiences throughout the years um, of this piece, in particular, Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. To you, Anne, Fiona and Stuart, thank you so much for joining me on LPO Offstage. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. That's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Stuart McElwam, Anne McEnany and Fiona Hyam for all their insights into what it's like to be an LPO player playing Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. Please get in touch using the hashtag OffstagePod and thanks very much for listening. Do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage, which we're calling Oiling the Valves. Oh,